0: I want to speak with you this morning about a, a familiar passage to many, but maybe not to all, in the book of 1 Kings, under the title of Yet I Have My 7,000. Uh, many, many years ago, when I first started preaching in, before 1984, because that funeral in 1984 that I mentioned was the one for my grandfather who passed away, but he, I preached a sermon that he really liked called What Doest Thou Hear Elijah? where I talked about what happened there and Elijah's reaction to the events. We'll do some of that today. But I want to focus more on the statement that God makes at the very end of this whole episode here in Elijah's life. Now, Elijah was one of the two or three greatest men that ever lived, in God's eyes. Because even when Jesus there, uh, before his crucifixion, and his transfiguration, he met with Moses and Elijah. The people were expecting Elijah to come back to the dead. They thought Jesus was Elijah. So he is the symbol for the prophets. That's who he is. His life and his, his personality, everything about him, it became the symbol for all the prophets. There's the law, Moses, and there's the prophets, Elijah. And these two are the great figures of Israel's history. And he was a very powerful man. But he was an emotional man, up and down. And you see this illustrated in this story. He was very brave and courageous, very outspoken, and his adversaries were most notably King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. She was from the country of Tyre, a pagan. She introduced the worship of Baal to the Israelites, which became their curse. And uh, she was a very notorious woman for other wicked things that she did. I don't understand today why people name their daughter Jezebel. I cannot get that. But uh, that's what people sometimes do. Why not pick Athaliah? She was great, you know, she had all her. Grandkids, but they don't. I don't know why they do don't do the why that people do that thing. I can't answer that question. You know, um, the story takes place we're going to tell here in northern northwest Israel at Mount Carmel. There's a picture of the statue that's there at on the top of Mount Carmel that you, we went to. This is one I took. A couple of these I took, kind of blew it up. And there's different languages all around the base of the statue. Um, in different language, telling this is this is the prophet uh, Elijah where he killed all the prophets of Baal and so forth, called down fire from heaven. And Of course, I have no idea that's what he looked like, but that statue is there. And when you get up there, you see this panorama of most all the land of Israel. You can see from one end of Israel, across it to the sea, it's a wonderful place to be. And the, the I took some pictures of it, uh, of the a view from the top of Mount Carmel. I don't know how well it shows up here, but you see all the groves and hills all the way into the distance. It was kind of a cloudy day that day, but it's beautiful. This picture doesn't capture, does it forever at all, what it looks like up there. It's very, very impressive. And there's another one I took, kind of a more of a panoramic view from the top of Mount Carmel. But what had happened here? There wasn't that the the people of Israel had there much a one time been in some altar of the Lord. They had broken it down, and they had built an altar to the prophet Baal. There were four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal in the country at that time, according to the text in the book of First Kings, chapter eighteen. Baal was a fertility god of the Phoenicians, and he became a he was representative of so many other fertility gods in all the other cultures. The male side his his sister and his wife were ashtareth asherah uh, also worshiped by the israelites as in the king james you'll hear her called the grove because she was worshiped in trees but baal was the master god the god of thunder the god of fertility all these other things and he led the people the belief in him led the people away from jehovah he became jehovah became less significant what they were doing is they were worshiping both baal and jehovah together And they were, but eventually the false gods take over. Now God was very much, Jehovah, was very angry with them. I'm sorry about this microphone popping here. Maybe I'll put it in there and be better. Uh, Was very angry with them because they were worshiping another god besides him, who they called the Master. And so Elijah was confronting this false worship in Israel. (coughs) I'm not dying. I don't have COVID. But <coughs> decided I'd chew, chew a lozenge before I preached. and Maybe that wasn't the best idea. In any event, he challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest. He told Israel to gather all a bunch of people up on this mountain. When you walk up this hillside up to this Mount Carmel, you see forests and the grounds covered in rocks. When you read the Bible about rocky ground, I mean, Israel's covered in rocks and it's in the big ones everywhere you go. And this was particularly rocky on this top of this Mount Carmel as you walk up the pathway. And it's all cleared off up there and they have a balustrade where where we were standing to take this picture with a railing. But near there somewhere, there was an altar to Baal. Elijah gathered the people together and said, how long go you limping between two sides? If Baal is God, serve him. If Jehovah is God, serve Him. And they just stood there quietly and listened. And so he proposed this: he proposed that all the prophets of Baal will take two bulls, one for them, one for me. We'll kill the bull, put, up, put it on the altar, and call on our God to rain down fire from heaven and light that bull on fire as a sacrifice. And all the people said, "This is great. This we'll do. This then we'll know. Then we'll know who to worship." And so they did that. He let them go first, of course, in the morning. And they put their bull on the altar, and they began to dance and chant and walk around that thing all day long. At noon, Elijah interrupted and said, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on a journey. One one translation, which is right, maybe he's in the bathroom. He was mocking them. Call louder. Maybe he's on in the bathroom. You need to call him more. And he was mocking them. And they kept on. The, and by the middle of the afternoon, they were taking knives and cutting themselves and blood gushed out. This was, and they were speaking in, most likely in gibberish, kind of what we would call charismatic language as they worked themselves into a frenzy and nothing happened. Finally, Elijah called to all that you've had all day. Clear this off. And he went and found some stones there. On, you could see where he'd find them on the hillside there. He took the stones and built an altar, 12 stones, built an altar to the Lord. Put wood on it, took, dug a trench around the altar and he told them, he put the animal on and said, okay, bring water. And they brought gallons and gallons of water, poured it all over the meat, all over the wood, all over the rocks. And he filled the trench up. Did it three times. Filled everything up with water. And then he prayed to God, to God, you, you show these people that you're God. I am praying to you as your prophet to show these people that you're God. And then fire rained down from heaven. And consumed the bull, the wood, the rocks, and all the water was licked up by the fire. Now, of course, this is a pretty dramatic illustration of God's power versus Baal. Maybe the most dramatic in all the Old Testament. And the people said, Jehovah, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. They were so excited. And Elijah said, seize all these other prophets. There are 450 other prophets there of Baal. Seize them all. And he took them down toward the valley and he killed all 450 that day, Elijah did, before the sun went down. Killed all the prophets of Baal. I think he thought that day he'd won a great victory He turned Israel back away from the idolatry, back to worshiping Jehovah. But it wasn't long until that was going to fade away. Some blamed Elijah because he ran away. Immediately after that, Jezebel set out to kill him. Just before that happened, though, you see here, it says around this time in verse 44 of chapter 18, then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud Small, he sent a servant down over to look at the ocean. Keep going over and look at the ocean. Elijah was praying. Seven times he sent a servant over there. Elijah's praying for rain. Praying for rain. Hadn't rained in how many years? Three and a half years. Three years, right? Elijah prayed three years ago, stop raining in Israel. God, stop it from raining. Make the people repent. The land had dried up. They were starving. They needed water so bad because God stopped the rain because Elijah prayed. James and James 5 says, this shows that the prayer of an ordinary man can work up miracles. You know the prayer about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much? That's what that statement's about. It was talking about the fact that Elijah, even, not as a prophet, but as an ordinary man prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three years in Israel. Now when this happens, Elijah begins to pray for rain. He tells the servant, go look, go look, go see. And finally, he came back and said, yep, I see a cloud. It's as small as a man's hand. So Judy stood there and tried to find a small cloud, put her hand by. I didn't get a very good picture of it on top of this mountain. Looking toward the sea, the same place the circle would have been. This is the same place the circle would be. And finally, it happened in the mean, He said, when he saw this small cloud, he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot. and Go down before the rain stops you. Ahab was up on this mountain too. And he told him, Go and prepare your chariot. I think Gary broke this. I'll turn it off. I blame him. He's not here. He used it last, he must have broken it. He told Ahab, You better get down off this mountain because it's fixing to rain. Hadn't rained in three years. I'm sure, I'm sure Ahab looked at him and like, what's wrong with you? He said, nope, it's going to rain. Get down. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel down in the valley. You can, that's part of the valley you can see in the picture I took, Jezreel. Beautiful valley. And then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And so You see this picture. Now, what happened as soon as he got back to his palace, Jezebel's wife, this wicked woman, said, you've killed my prophets, Elijah. I'm going to make your, I hope God kills me. I hope Bailey, she would say, kills me if I don't kill you before the end of this day. And so Elijah ran. He didn't stay and confront her. I don't know what he was thinking, but he ran away. How can you see this display of God's power and pray that, that God would bring fire from heaven and then pray that he'd bring rain from heaven? He does both. And then when Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, he gets afraid and runs away. Part of that will be illustrated perhaps a little bit later in that he sees that there's all these Israelites that were so excited that early in the day, they'd all left him. He was by himself again. He was going to stand alone against her. And so he took off to the south. And he hid underneath a juniper tree for a while. God brought him some sustenance there. God said, Go on, go south. And for 40 days he walked down through the wilderness all the way to Mount Sinai in the peninsula Arabian Peninsula. He walked forty, he walked all the way down there. It took him forty days to get there. Found a cave and was living in the cave away from everybody, hoping nobody would find him. And basically he was praying to God, I want to die. I tried my best. They won't believe me. I'm the only one left. Take my life, he prays to God. Well, God said to him here in 1 Kings 19, verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Go go outside your cave and look for a moment. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after this fire, a still small voice. Don't know what the voice said. Doesn't say what it says. So it was, though, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle. That's his cloak. And went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is the question I asked him before. What are you doing here? God knew what he was doing there, but he wanted Elijah to think about it. Why are you here? You have work to do. Why are you here? Well, Elijah was there because he thought he had failed. He had tried to stand up to the prophets of Baal, to the king, but it didn't work. He found himself cornered. <clears throat> the people were still going away instead of getting closer to God. When he, when God gave him a chance, they went further away. And so Elijah felt alone, discouraged, and asked God to take his life. And so what he says is this, verse fourteen. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. Anybody ever feel like that? Look around the events of our society and you see people feel like this. They feel like whatever we've done for 50 years now, it's all failed. We're worse off than we were before religiously, spiritually, morally, we're worse off than we were 50 years ago. In spite of all all the advances we've made in technology, all the people preaching and teaching the Bible all over the United States, on the air, we're worse off than we were before. And it's easy to feel alone and small and helpless, and people want to give up. And you know, from the earthly standpoint, it looks like that probably is not all that unreasonable. Just give up and let her go. But... God didn't say that to Elijah on that day. He thought he was alone and that he was helpless, but it turns out he wasn't. So the Lord said to him, verse 15, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Go, go all the way from Mount Sinai down here. Go all the way up even north of Israel to Damascus. And when you arrive, appoint Hazael as king over Syria. Now what we're going to find out is he, he may have done this, but he didn't go straight there. Other things intervened. But he did do what he says here in the long run. Anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel. That means Ahab is going to be taken out of the way. This is going to happen sometime in the future. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint as prophet in your place. See these are the kind of verses you give the unsuspecting brother to read for a scripture reading. You give him these verses. And then watch him try to say these names. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. So he says, in time, this is going to work out. I got You still have a job to do, Elisha, Elijah. You're not finished yet. You go anoint these three men. And what he's saying to him is, they're going to carry on after you. The story's not over yet. You think it's over, and your life may be coming to a close, but the story's not over yet. You're a link in a chain, a great chain of God's purpose, and you need to carry out your purpose on this work. And that's when He says to him in verse eighteen, "Yet, in spite of all these things, Elijah, in spite of all what's happened, yet I have reserved seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed Him." Now, now this is a this is a, a correction or a realignment of Elijah, Elijah's thinking. I'm the only one left, he says. They're trying to kill me. I'm the only one. Was he the only one? He wasn't. It's easy to think that all is lost, that you're the only one left. Maybe this church is the only one left. It's easy to think that. But God says, even in this time, I have 7,000. Now, 7,000, as we'll see in a moment, isn't a great number when you compare to the population of Israel. But it was enough for God. It was enough. He could save them. Now, run this whole history out, and you'll see yes, Elijah does appoint Elisha to do great miracles in Israel. But Elisha led the people through great destruction, finally at the end of that time, God destroyed the whole nation of Israel. All the northern kingdom was destroyed. The People carried away into captivity, most never to be able to return again at all. There was never a nation there like there was before. They were all destroyed. He all, Sennacherib almost came down, came to the walls of Jerusalem and, and God turned him back. He tried to conquer the southern kingdom too. It wasn't time yet. Eventually, you see, even Judah was destroyed because of their worship of Baal. So Elisha thought it was all over. It wasn't. And finally, out of that, God had a remnant. Now, I think what this 7,000 means here is God always has a remnant of people that are trying to serve him and do his will. It doesn't always look like that. We can't always put a name on them, or we can't always find their website on on the internet. You know, to know who they are, and we can't find we can't don't always know who's there being faithful to the Lord. But God is saying, "I have a remnant of people that are going to serve me." I believe since the founding of the church in in, in time of, of Peter and Paul and, Christ, and and Jesus Christ, that there have always been people faithful to God. I can't prove that historically. I can't go show you who they were. I can only show you little remnants of historically of groups like the Albigens and the Waldenses and other groups of people even in, at the high of the Catholic Church before Martin Luther. I can show you some groups that were trying to serve God from the scriptures and demanding only to be served by. The one group uh, up in Germany there, they always had a priest in these little towns. Well the priest died and the church just never got around to sending anybody else. And so for a generation or so, this little group of Catholic Christians didn't have a priest to tell them what to do. And somewhere along the way they got a hold of a New Testament. They began to they began to read the New Testament and they got rid of instrumental music. They did all kinds of things change. And when the Pope found out about this eventually, he sent troops in and destroyed them. Because they wouldn't bow the knee to Pope anymore. This happened a few times. Those are one or two places like that that we have inklings of people that went back and found the seed. Remember last week, the seed the Word of God, a couple weeks ago? They found the seed and began to try to worship without the interference of the Pope or anybody else. But we don't have a consistent record of all those people. But God always has his 7,000. We may think that there's nobody left in this country that wants to do right. There are. Most are corrupted. There's no doubt about that. Most uh, citizens of the United States even the ones who call themselves Christians are corrupted by the doctrines of men. They're corrupted by their own immorality and doing what they want to do. And you know, it's true. I always say, you can find a clergyman to say almost anything. They always stick a microphone in front of a preacher or a clergyman and say, what do you think about this? And they'll say almost anything. Of course, they select who they want to put on the air. Because they do. They're corrupted. When, when they think a whole bunch of societies against them, they'll take almost any position, whatever it may be, on a moral issue. Because they want the approval of men. And unfortunately, it's never been any different. We think this is some great change in human nature. It's not a great change. It's the way it's always been. That's what happened in Israel. That's why they turned the prophets of Baal. They knew their neighbors wouldn't like it. They would get canceled if they didn't worship Baal, you know. And so they went along with it. Because it was what everybody else was doing. And there always were good reasons to do this. There's a New Testament reference to this here in Romans Romans 11. This passage is mentioned by Paul. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. That's the the Israelites. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life? But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Even... Even among the Jews who crucified Christ, Paul is saying there were a remnant of those people there who now worship Jesus Christ and serve him. Even among them, when it looks like they were all against him and they put him to death. And now the whole nation had turned against Paul for trying to put him to death. He says, nope, even then God saved his remnant. I like like the Old Testament version. Yet, yet I have my 7,000. I like the word yet there. Yet means in spite of what you see and what it looks like, I yet I still have my 7,000. Not a lot. Well, you can read stories like uh, you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible almost, back to back to Noah. It tells about how wicked the world was in the days of Noah. That the thought of their heart was only evil continually. And they, every, every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually in Genesis 6. And then it says, <clears throat> but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I only see one person there, not 7,000. Now you can say, well, he saved eight. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that the other seven were even faithful. Maybe they were. Maybe that's the implication why he saved them. But I know Noah was faithful to God. He found grace in his eyes. One. You go and you find, now now the exception to this is, is Lot with the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe I should be preaching about Sodom and Gomorrah. Because when he says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy this city, he knows his son-in-law lives there. I mean his son-in-law. His nephew lives there, his family. He said, God, if I can find just 15 righteous people, will you spare the city? Sure. Noah couldn't... Moses, Noah, Elisha, Elijah. This is not going to... Abraham. Boy, once I start saying Elijah, if I say Elisha once, it's all over. (laughs) And then if I ask you the question, how many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? What's the answer? None. Moses didn't take anything on the ark. Anyway, I preach whole sermons about the ark and mention Moses the whole time. But in any event... (laughs) That's how it works sometimes. In any event... Abraham says, well, how about 10? Will you do it for 10? No. How about five? Couldn't even find five. But he did save Lot and his two daughters. I guess he had one. And then Joshua, in spite of all the idols that people were worshiping and were, tempted, were going to be tempted to worship, Joshua says, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. You come to the New Testament in Revelation chapter three, it says uh, that that there are a few people in Sardis who were worthy to walk in with the Lord in white. There's a whole church in Sardis. And all I can say is there are a few of you that walk in white. The rest of you, even though you're in the church are condemned. So even in new Testament churches in new Testament times, people did not follow the Lord. Only a few did sometimes. And unfortunately that's the way it's always been in the, in this case. So, uh, this is this election of grace. So who were these 7,000 people? Well, I'll tell you what we know about them for sure. By implication, they were unknown to Elijah. Whatever you can say else you can say about him is Elijah didn't know about them. Or else he's just overly exaggerating and saying I'm the only one left when he knew there were others who were left who had served him. He thought he was the only one. So there's 7,000 other people that were doing what was good and what was following the Lord. He didn't know about it. So before we give up and think we're the only ones left, we're going to be all overrun. We we may be, but I know that there are other people that I don't know that serve the Lord. They don't have to be known to me to be faithful to God. God knows who they are. We'll come to that in just a moment. And and they were a strong minority. They they were enough for God. They were a very small minority, to be true, to to be honest, very small. But they were enough to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish in that generation. There were enough. Noah was enough for God to save. The few in Sardis were enough. In fact, when you look at the scripture and you see that the whole world lies under the wicked one, yet God came to save the whole world through Christ. And you see that even Jesus says that there will be few that are saved. Many will walk in the path of destruction. Only a few will be saved. And you wonder, how can this be? It seems to me that God is willing to save even one. Even one. Why would God allow this to continue? Because of his long suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. Even though he knows in reality most all will perish. He lets them have a chance to live. And prove it to them, prove it for themselves. But he's content with a few. We need to remember that. God is content with a few, always has been, who will serve him from his heart. That's what he wants, a few. We may wish it was everybody. We may get discouraged because not everybody believes it. So many people say, well, nobody wants to hear the truth anymore. That's not true. Most people don't. They want to hear what they want to hear. But there's always a few that want to hear the truth and will listen. And you see they come from the most surprising places. I'm always surprised as a preacher over time at the people who come to obey the gospel of Christ. Surprised at where they come from and who they are, because I don't I don't do that choosing. Uh, they they were faithful to the Lord and not to Baal. There are people out there right now that I may not know about, who are serving Jesus Christ in fullness of truth. I may not know about them, even if my friends may not know about them. But I believe the Lord says I have my seven thousand. And you see that there have been a few many a few many times in the Bible. They might they may not be known to us at all. I don't know where they are. But God still says, Yet I have my 7,000. Don't give up. And here's the good part about that, from what we know about the New Testament. The 7,000 don't have to be present right here at this very moment, because as the gospel continues to work its way through the world, we get new ones all the time. The power of darkness, the power of civil government, Caesar cannot put out the flame. The, the world cannot crush the seed of the Word of God. The seed will be planted, if it's planted, if we do our job and plant the faithful seed, from the New Testament of people's hearts, it will bear fruit that Caesar cannot crush, the gods of this earth cannot eliminate. They just can't do it. They try. But like the early church, they made a point to say that, that our blood spilled upon the ground becomes the seed for new Christians. Pray to God doesn't come to that sometimes. but The other thing that we have going for us in churches of Christ is we're independent. We don't have to be carried away because the headquarters of the denomination says everybody's going to have gay preachers now. We don't have to be carried away by that because we're independent of all that. This church exists on its own. There's no other organic ties or control by any other person or group on this church. Only the word of God. And here's the good thing about that. I know lots of other churches like this all over the world. There's no central organization to them. They've sprung up organically on their own as the word was preached. But I know where many of them are, and I can find them, and you can too. They're independent. And so if Gary and I go astray and lead you all astray, that's not going to affect the church somewhere else around here, necessarily. This is the way God designed it. The way men design things is the head gets to determine everything, and it corrupts the whole tree. That's why men decide everything. And most people are not content with a church like that. They want some organic structure that they can control or uh, see or understand. They've got to have all that structure that they can look about and see who's doing what and what the great council and all this. It's like the fellow I met years ago in Boca Raton when I was preaching down there. He, I told him that I, I was uh, uh. undenominational. He said, yeah, me too. He says, I, in fact, he said, our church is a member. He was a preacher. Our, our church is a member of the American Association of Non-Denominational Churches. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He thought that was a great, a great response. Really? I I don't know how that works. But he confused two things. He he, he confused things. There's a difference between being non-denominational and being undenominational. Non-denominational means you don't really believe much of anything. Whatever you want to believe is okay. I'm interpreting that. We'll accept things from everywhere. Uh, Any kind of doctrines, as long as they're generic enough, we accept that. We're non-denominational. Undenominational means you don't have any part of these denominational things, and the traditions of men. You're going to go back to the New Testament to find what you're going to do, and be independent and do that. That's undenominational. This church is not non-denominational; it's undenominational. If I were to put a label on it, but it's independent, and, and so were these other seven thousand. Just because they didn't know Ahab, and he couldn't list I mean, Ahab. There I go. And I got another name confused. <clears throat> Just because they didn't know Elijah doesn't mean that they weren't faithful to the Lord or that they didn't exist. And then they were autonomous. That goes with this independence. They ruled themselves. We're autonomous. No one rules in this church except Jesus Christ. The elders, as long as they try to maintain what God's word and try to do God's word, encourage you to do that, will be doing their job, as God says. But there's no outside control. And the other thing about the church of Jesus Christ is the Lord adds you to the church. I don't care what men say about who's a Christian or not. You shouldn't either. If you're a true Christian, the Lord has added you to His church when you were baptized in Jesus' name. He adds you to the church. Men don't get to control that. And so you might get excommunicated from some denomination somewhere because you don't follow their teachings. And just because you, you won't follow them down the road to sexual immorality, you might get excluded from them. The question is, has the Lord added you to his church? And that's why Satan cannot touch this group of people in the long run. You make attempts to wheedle them away. Now, for us, <clears throat> then, uh, we, we need to think about being like this faithful remnant people i know there's a way of thinking that saying that that speaking of yourself as a remnant is not productive and useful i understand that and i i know that, that this could be have a deficiency of teaching people some kind of defeatism and that's not the point i'm making or it can make people feel man i'm special because i'm part of the remnant i'm better than other people you can get the pride israel was proud because god selected them and they were few they were proud of that, and they, they they looked down on others. Those are the negative sides of the idea of a faithful remnant. But a remnant's a piece of something that God can take and make use of. So we have to understand that in the world, it has never been any different than this. We are always going to be fewer in number than the controlling people. In fact, I don't even think it's a good thing when the so-called church, in the broad sense, gets a control government. They haven't proven to do do a that much better job than the secular people in controlling government. They just impose their will. Sometimes it's kind of like the Democrats and Republicans. The the only real difference is they just have different things they want to make you do. One group wants to make you do this, another group wants to make you do that, and a pox on both their houses. That's not what the Constitution says about political parties or government. But the churches can be like that too. So we can go different directions, but we need to realize as the faithful remnant that what that means is we are going to stay true to the Lord no matter what happens and pass this along to another generation, this same idea. Bible says that we ought to find faithful men, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, and teach those faithful men that they might be able to teach others also. There's the transgenerational aspect of that idea. Are we spiritually, a spiritually strong minority? Hopefully so. By strong there, I mean grounded in the faith, unwilling to yield, no matter what the social and political pressures will be brought upon us, unwilling to yield to earthly doctrines about all kinds of things from the nature of the church, the nature of government, sexuality, morality, whatever it may be. Unwilling to yield. Unfortunately, most people will yield. We'll see it's going to work that way as time goes by. You'll begin to see some of these major denominations begin. Well, we've already seen it. They start shifting their views. Let me tell you something. John Calvin would be appalled, unbelievably appalled at what the Presbyterian church stands for in the world today. He would be utterly appalled. So these organizations can start off however they want to, but they eventually become corrupted and they always move The way of the world, because the whole world lies in the wicked one. The more they want approval, the more they want bigger numbers, the more they want to be accepted, the more more likely that that they're going to become against, they're going to be teaching against what God teaches. Uh, Will we be faithful to the Lord and only to the Lord? This is a hard thing to, to see in real life as it works out. As a person who has a large family, Lots of connections of many relatives, both in my immediate family and and children, grandchildren, but also a large extended family beyond all of that. I can tell you that there's a great pull to be faithful to your family, what your family stands for, to defend what your family does because they're your family. They're your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles. You can defend all those people, but and you can be faithful to them. Some people some people are faithful to them all the time. They they, they spend more they, they're gonna forsake the assembling to spend time with that family. I guess that's okay sometimes here and there, but it becomes what people live for my family, or my friends, or my work, my career, my work, my life's dream. Are we faithful to the Lord? Willing to hold on to what he says for me to be personally? as well as us collectively? That's the question. There's also got lots of gods of Baal out there that seduce us away from the truth. And then will we change the message or corrupt it? <clears throat> That's the question. That's why I point you back to the seed. I keep trying to teach you what the seed is because the seed planted will grow what God wants it to grow. Will we hold fast or corrupt our service? even, our, even Not only our worship services, but our, the private service we give to God. Are we going to corrupt it? I heard a guy who was, uh, uh, he's a Pentecostal preacher. Read this in the paper a while, a while back. And, and uh, he had been real strong opponent of abortion. And known for that in the city. Well, it turns out his 17-year-old daughter got pregnant again and he had her having an abortion. Said that God had revealed to him that it was Okay. There you go. And some people, that may be an extreme, but some people are like that about a lot of issues. Fornication, adultery, divorce. They're like that about a lot of issues. Homosexual, uh, uh, uh as, accepting homosexually as being morally correct. They're like that about a lot of issues till it intrudes on their life. Till they have to make a decision or think what, say what they're going to say about it. And then they are corrupted in what they say. Let's close off, let's close this with a couple of ideas here this morning. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, I love this verse. I'm not even sure why, <laughs> I don't, but I love this scripture because I think there's something very powerful here. Nevertheless, he says, in spite of what's con- in spite of all the false, before this, he'd been talking about the false teachers, Hymenaeus and others who had corrupted the teaching of the gospel. And he condemned them for that. But Paul says here, nevertheless, there's that word yet again. Nevertheless, yet the solid foundation of God stands. I think older versions say the firm foundation of God. I like that better. The firm foundation of God says, having this seal. It's been, here's what God has said, and on the on the base of this foundation is stamped something. The Lord knows those who are his. You want to put up an idol? Put this at the bottom. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord, the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. The Lord God knows who are His. Does He know you? You made that clear to Him in your life, and your thinking, and your prayer, what you do, that He's the Lord. And everybody knows that that's who you are. The Lord knows who is, who is His. And, and the fact is, I don't know all the people that the Lord knows. So I've got to be careful about my statements about everybody else is wrong except me. Because I don't know. The Lord knows, though. And sometimes I meet these people that i never expected to meet that have been the Lord all along. And I didn't even know it. But then he says, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There it is. You want to claim to be follower of Christ, depart from iniquity. The word iniquity here is a big word and it means without law, literally not having a law. Iniquity is the feeling in the heart. I can do it. I can do what I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. And it leads to all manner of sin. You de- have to depart from that attitude, from that thinking, and depart from iniquity. And so, Matthew Henry says this in closing, God's faithful ones are often His hidden ones. Psalm 83.3 And the visible church is scarcely to be seen. There may be a visible church there, but God may not even recognize it. You know, in the book of Revelation, you have Jesus taking His, his approval from those churches that had their candles. He takes His approval. From them. The churches to keep on existing. They existed for centuries. But God had taken his approval away from them because they were no longer serving him. The wheat is lost in the chaff. A lot more chaff shows up than wheat. And the gold in the dross. A lot more dross that's going to be thrown away than the actual gold in the rocks. Until the sifting, the refining, the separating day comes. In the judgment day, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows them that are his. Though we do not. He sees in secret when he... When we come to heaven, we shall miss many whom we thought to have met there. We get to heaven, we're going to find out some of the people we thought were going to, were going to be there are not going to be there. Because they were wicked, you just couldn't see it. But the Lord saw it. And many we, and we shall meet many whom we thought little of. We thought, we shall meet many whom we little thought to have met there. These old English guys, they speak so weird. Can't even read them. It's like they're not writing in English. So there's going to be a lot of people that we meet there we thought, well, I never would have thought at all that they were faithful to the Lord. i going to be surprised. Remember that parable Jesus told about those who were surprised in the judgment day? Matthew 25. God's love often proves larger than man's charity and far more extended. The Lord knows who are His. I, I want these words today to encourage you. To remain faithful to the Lord, true to yourself and to your family, and true to what the Lord says. Have confidence in, that you're doing the right thing to stand true and not give in to what other people want this church to be or what they want you to be. The Lord knows who are His. And we're not the only ones. Let God work His work. Now, I will say it took a long time. And you know, Elijah's work eventually led to Israel being destroyed and led to Judah being destroyed. But then, out of that destruction came what? A remnant that God would call His own. That's the church. That's what God said. So there was a big plan here that God knew that Elijah couldn't see much of. He was just supposed to serve God in his own generation, and that's all he could do. That's what we can do. Let's don't be counted among those who walk away from the Lord because it's hard or difficult or shameful. But let's stand to what's true and right. And along the way, the idea that we plant is, is that we plant the Word of God so that others may have access to this very same life saving message. We're going to close our service this morning by, by singing the song that our brother selected. Number 683, though your sins be as, scar- as scarlet. I apologize for the length of the sermon. I thought it would be shorter. I had to show pictures of Judy, you know. But, uh, <clears throat> don't you think she looks good in red? I always tell her that, but she just won't do it. I made her buy that coat. It was, I made her buy that coat. Because I knew in Israel there would be all these crowds and I'd lose her. And then I'd be really lost. i made mean, up in a bright red coat. And it worked. I could see her wherever she went because she's always walking ahead of me. I'm always looking at stuff. And I found her because she had that bright, bright red coat on. But anyway, I, see, how, see how sermons get long? We're going to sing number 683. Though your sins be a scarlet. God can forgive the sins. You need to think about that. If you're expecting to receive applause in the world by following Christ, you won't. Do you want to serve Him? Be one of the 7,000? hope that you do. If we can baptize you into Christ this morning, let that be known by coming to the front. Perhaps we can pray with you. Get you back on track again. Get your life right with God. We'll pray with you this morning and God can forgive. Come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.